In the Shadow of the Ratliff Hotel by Dean Peterson Chapter 1 The foundation stones rested atop each other without mortar or fixative. Just rough rectangles of granite resting after chapped hands placed them there over a century ago. The clabbered siding of the aged place was a collection of warped boards the color of dirty ice splintered by eternal winds. The broken windows under the porch resembled gouged-out eyes. The remaining plate glass shards jutted like broken teeth, ready to devour whatever traipsed through the sagebrush and pines of the Wind River Mountains. It was a haunted house if John Carson had ever seen one, and he was in no hurry to go in that old three-story monster once known as the Ratliff Hotel. He'd been in most of the structures of the abandoned mining town of Ratliff before, photographed them and documented them on the tablet he'd been issued. However, the old Ratliff remained unbreached and undocumented, sticking out of its crooked foundation like a stalagmite or old tree stump. It reminded Carson of an aged man's arthritic middle finger pointed up firmly in defiance against the death of the town it had been part of. Carson bit his lower lip between his incisors and pulled a thin piece of dry skin free. He reached for the plastic tube on his camel back, drank, and continued on down the two-track road. He didn't like turning his back on the Ratliff, for reasons he didn't want to fully admit. It was like an angry black dog you encountered on a walk that you didn't take your eyes off of until you were a safe distance away. It can wait, he said beneath his breath. A habit he realized he'd started since he'd come to this place, divorced from other's speech at the start of summer. Sometimes the coyotes would cackle and yelp in the distance, a sound that froze his blood the first time he heard it. However... Most of the time, all Carson heard was the soft creak of the pine boughs rocking and hissing in the endless wind. All the cell phone sounds and email chimes in his little apartment in Denver seemed as alien to him now as a Toyota Prius or a support or troop sticker. It felt good to forget. Carson kept walking down the two tracks that tried to be a road despite all the weeds growing between them and listened to the distant roll of thunder. He hated loud noises. However, up here... Despite the bone-jarring thunder crashes threatening to carry him back to that place of soul-atomizing explosions and sudden violence, in this temple of solitude, he could bear the sound without breaking. After listening to violent thunderstorms for weeks from his perch in the mountains, they lost the capacity to take him back into the fatal memories of his past. Now he listened to thunder like a mantra, or his favorite song. Laying in the grass, he'd let the cold droplets of rain kiss his eyelashes as the rolling cascade of timpani drums broke and snapped to life above him with the unsettling pop of negatively charged ions strobing across the sky. The teardrops of rain rolled over his face like an ointment or balm, cleaning and swabbing out the waking nightmares that had transposed themselves over his life since leaving that faraway place of aching boredom and soul-searing terror. Memories of the chatter of gunfire, flashes of the universe-ending explosions right next to him that voided his bowels and turned life into a static, buzzing netherworld, stinking smoke black as the tires that fueled orange flames, burning hot metal, the sticky movement of clumsy fingers sliding the nylon of a tourniquet up a leg through the warm, coppery stink of hot blood. There should not be that much blood in anyone. There certainly shouldn't be that much flowing out of anybody. He'd forgotten to use his razor sometime lately. It sat on the ancient zinc basin in his room in the house he'd been issued. His thick black whiskers had begun to sprout and spread over his thinning jaw and neck. After a bath last night, when he walked by the mirror in the hallway, the one backed with gold dust making little black imperfections in it like mold, he saw how his ribs were starting to poke through his frame. 
His hips were making their way out below his abdomen, and the gaunt, bearded figure staring back scared him, as if one of the minions of the ghost town had walked behind the mirror to stare at him after he got out of the tub. He knew something was off, but so many things were off, and stopping to think about it didn't seem to produce any answers. Gotta get some work done. He told himself sotto voce in the quiet of the woods. He had said the same thing last week, too, but like someone reading an incoherent book in the heat, his mind wandered, and then so did he. Then this modern product of asphalt and iPhones found himself staring at an aspen leaf spinning in the breeze for longer than he knew. The cold air of another summer storm would run up the back of his hoodie and trailer fingers over his neck like the hands of a seductive masseuse. Gotta get into town and eat something. He mumbled, heading back to his house and thinking again of his own Auschwitz-like appearance in the mirror. No wonder he was losing weight. Just walking up here at over 10,000 feet above sea level was like running a 10K. How did they do it? The men in the rain slickers and overalls who hacked away at the stones and rocks in the mine. He had gone through their garbage heaps behind the ruins of their crumbling shacks. He wasn't assigned to, but he did it anyway. There are bottles upon bottles of beer, rusted tin cans long divorced from their labels, worn-down axe heads, the soles of rawhide tough shoes. Once he found a rotting deck of playing cards taken from the dusty table in the old saloon where the pastel of a nude woman with big hips reclined over the bar mirror. There was so much more here than he had been sent to document. The boring photos he'd been hired to take were like an unimaginative blip on the radar compared to what had gone on in this lonely place. He could almost hear the throbbing pounding of hammers and pickaxes, the methodical turning of gears up in the anaconda mine as arsenic scoured the rocks for the glimmer of gold, the wagon wheels turning on badly greased axles bringing in baking powder and flour and coffee and dynamite to the general store. Carson shook his head and took a knee to shoot the interior of a crumbling cabin on his way home. He thought he had shot it before, but it was hard to be sure of anything anymore. The cabin was really just a few rough-hewn tree trunks, no longer clasped neatly together like Lincoln logs. They had settled crookedly as a series of tumbling, off-kilter rhombuses melting into the black soil and pine needles. Carson thought that somewhere he had a certificate saying he was a photographer from some school long before the war. It didn't matter. His bosses did not want photos of the fascinating and avant-garde. They wanted raw, simple documentation and write-ups of this old place before a Bureau of Reclamation Mine Cleanup and Mitigation team went full-scale detox on the quicksilver and cyanide-laden land. Then, most probably, another firm would come in and shore up, scrub down, and sanitize the whole place for public consumption. The few silver nitrate images that still hung on the walls of some of the buildings showed derby-capped men smoking in the saloon and a hunched-over Chinese coolie pushing a mine cart. They would all burn out and melt beneath the lacquered facade and camera flashes of tourists from Sandusky and Des Moines, and worst of all, L.A. Fat kids wondering why they had stopped here instead of the ball pit at McDonald's. Mascara-smeared pubescent girls crying on their cell phones to unfaithful boyfriends. Parents cursing at GPSs in their SUV-born dash for Yellowstone, stopping only to use a toilet and take a picture before they went back to a life of Starbucks and stuccoed dreams of how they thought they were supposed to be. Just the other day, Carson had stared down the lane bisecting the row of shacks and businesses passing for downtown. He thought he saw a woman descend from the back of a stagecoach by the saloon. Despite the summer sun, white flecks of snow rested in the raven black of her hair, and a plume of frost escaped her mouth when she turned in his direction. Her skin shined pale and white, like a Roman statue as her tired, dark eyes darted nervously over her surroundings. Her lips were swollen, and a scab clung to the corner of her mouth, 
The skin around her eye was yellowed where it had been blackened some time before. She turned and disappeared, leaving Carson standing mouth agape and stupid in the middle of the street. Sometimes I see a woman, Carson said that evening as he stared into his tin coffee cup. I don't know why, but I get the impression of her being a schoolteacher. Me too, Pete said. Instead of going into town, Carson found company in Pete Winston, who had dropped by on one of his irregular visits through town. Pete was one of the old miners who still combed the mountains for gold. He drove an ancient-looking pickup that was victim to a thousand hailstorms and mud-slicked fender benders with trees and rocks. He rocketed it around a million miles an hour on the old shale road, even though he had nowhere to be. Sometimes Pete did it drunk. He had been scratching the dirt for gold since sometimes after the Tet Offensive, and hadn't quit since. Crawling down holes looking for gold isn't as bad as crawling down looking for dinks, he had explained to Carson on their first meeting when he'd nervously eyed the dirty old man filling his radiator from the creek. Carson was a little disappointed that the first real-life miner he had met did not wear flannel and have a pack mule in tow. Instead, Pete looked more like a meth head. He had a shaggy gray beard that was stained brown and yellow in places from nicotine, a dirty old brown ball cap that still barely showed a Federal Ammunition logo gloaming through the grime. Pete wasn't great company, and he laughed a lot at his own jokes, which seemed to bear witness to just how long this man had been alone in the Wind Rivers. Yep, Pete said after inviting himself to sit down on Carson's porch. Sometimes I see a schoolteacher, too. He began to fumble in the pocket of his filthy sweatshirt. Sometimes I see a librarian... Sometimes a flight attendant, sometimes a French maid. He pulled a pack of cigarettes from his pocket and began to fish one out. Anyone who ever thinks you ought to be lonely here in these mountains has never known the joys of satellite and the Playboy channel. Pete gave a phlegmy cackle through his yellow teeth as he held a lighter to the tip of his cigarette. He shook his head and grinned as he stared down the slope at the meager huddle of buildings that had once passed for the town of Ratliff. Carson smiled politely at the old man's joke and felt even more alienated than he would have if Pete hadn't come by. Nah, Pete said, taking a thoughtful puff on his cigarette. If you're seeing people, you might need to hop in the old time machine and head on down the road where you can see some real ones. He pulled the cigarette out of his mouth and tapped the ashes into a tiny metal ashtray with the Arby's logo stamped into it. At least for a while, he added. A fly the size of a gumball began to buzz and smack itself ruthlessly against the specked window behind them. They listened to its suicidal efforts for a while as the sun faded. If you're going into town, could you get me a carton of Marlboro's? Carson didn't go into town, after reminding himself that he would get into the Honda and hightail it into town and talk to that girl in the sort of too tight polo shirt at the sports bar, that outpost of civilization where he ate before he drove up to the ghost town for the first time. He'd talk to that girl, or any girl, or even their mothers or grandmothers, or any living thing that broke the silence. However, evening came, and he sat on the steel-framed rocker on the front porch of the historic house that seemed to have been his home forever. He watched the clouds do their slow summer parade over the biting edges of the mountains. He had a massive collection of movies on his hard drive and a rucksack full of novels, but instead they all sat in the corner of his bedroom upstairs, abandoned after the first night or two. Now he just watched the evening light burn from gold to red on the foxtails by the creek. On his lap, a yellowed copy of the Sears and Robot catalog set with him. He had found it inside a rusty old tin can in the garbage heap. It was an artifact, and should be treated as such with cotton gloves and acid-free storage containers. But Carson just leafed through it like a comic book, leaving it on the porch during the day like something awaiting an ignominious fate in the bowels of the outhouse. He would leaf through it looking at spats and hats and hardware supplies sold for less than the cost of a Big Mac. It was more interesting to him than Stephen King or John Grisham or the other paperbacks he had brought. 
It made more sense to him, fit him better somehow, than an episode of The Office or a rerun of Seinfeld. When no new stars popped in the darkness above, he went inside, wrapped up tight in the comforter, and crumpled into sleep, thinking again of that woman with the raven-black hair, flecked with white snow. Hi, this is Dean Peterson, author of In the Shadow of the Ratliff Hotel. I hope you're enjoying the story, and I hope to have another episode to you within about a week's time, if not sooner. If you are enjoying it, please give it a like and share it with somebody that you like. Also, please stay tuned. Within the next month or so, I hope to have a video out as well that shows the ghost town in the Wind River Mountains where I originally got the idea for the story.